Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sustainability in the Sea. If you're new here, let me give you the spiel. Me and my partner Alex, who is on a research cruise in an isolated island right now, are interviewing wave makers in our community so that we can teach you exactly how everyone's participating in ocean conservation. Today we're sitting down with Monica McLennigan, the Media and Communications Manager for Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii. Sustainable Coastlines is a nonprofit that started as an idea thrown around by friends in a living room on Oahu in 2010. They lead beach cleanups but with literally thousands of people. Like they remove thousands of pounds of trash from our coastlines. But they also do so much more and are in a living example of how ideas can turn into action, which can turn into movements, which is why we wanted to interview them. In this episode, we're gonna answer the real questions, like how Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii catalyzes disruptive change, why is a plastic cleanup organization also working in compost, and is the real answer individual or corporate change? Get ready to get inspired, and thanks for listening to Sustainability and the Sea. All right, we start every episode with this first question. What is your favorite way to experience the ocean? I have a lot of different ways that I like to experience the ocean, but I would say, in general, the best way is with friends whatever you're doing, it's always better when you get to experience it with people that you want to surround yourself with and that lift you up. And it's just way more fun that way. Yeah, totally agreed. (laughs) Yeah. Saving, saving the ocean or playing in it. Um, cool. What is your role, um, in sustainable coastlines and tell us a little bit about your background. I am the communications manager for sustainable coastlines, Hawaii. Uh, I do everything from social media to newsletters, help with the website. Sometimes I moonlight as a video producer, graphic designer. It all depends on what we need to get done. And I get to do it with a lot of volunteers help. And yeah, it's super fun. Um, My background, I grew up in Pennsylvania. It was there that I kind of found my passion for earth sciences and ecosystem sciences. Started volunteering for surf rider in New Jersey and it was like an hour drive away but I still just wanted to do my part dedicated that's awesome yeah I volunteered with a group um called United by Blue that's in um Philadelphia and they do a lot of street cleanups river cleanups and then I went to school in North Carolina I wanted to get away from cold weather so I went to North Carolina State and started off as a environmental engineer major realized I absolutely sucked at physics. So, um, and then I switched to, a um, natural resources with a concentration in ecosystem assessment. That was kind of where I started. And then after a while I was like, okay, I think I'm done with North Carolina. I think I should maybe move on. I was going to move to San Diego, but one of my coworkers was like, no, come to Hawaii with me for a month. Just take a break. Just a and month. Coming here. Like Taylor's oldest time, wound up staying after the month, got involved in sustainable coastlines and just kind of kept it going from there. And that's really where plastic pollution came into my life in a big way. I, before I was like, oh yeah, just recycle everything. And little did I know I was not having the right message. It's crazy how that's taught to everyone, but it's not the messaging that should be put out there. I know it could, it could have had to do with like our timeframe with when we were going in school, like recycle was like the key solution for people. But then you come here and you're like, absolutely not. That's not the solution at all. (laughs) I could go on for a whole nother podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's with the American chemistry council and everything. It's 
I hope that everyone listening looks at the American Chemistry Council and the types of initiatives <laughs> they've done. And then did you, did you, were you like, I just want to get involved in an organization and just did like a nice Google search? Um, so I followed them for a while and um, then I just reached out through a DM and this was when Kahi was still the executive director and I was like, hey Kahi, I'm here to help. Please use me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> here, I'll intern whatever you want. I just want to get involved. And so he just shot me a message back. We met for an interview and then the rest is history. The rest is history. That's now so it's cool. been years. That is awesome. Um, so what does turning off the tap mean? I always hear that at Sustainable Coastlines events. And I think that um, it's a really important concept that everyone should know. It's related to a metaphor. So imagine you walk into your house and your bathtub is overflowing. Would your first reaction be to grab a mop and then go clean up the mess? Or would it be to turn off the tap? And chances are your first reaction will be to turn off the tap first, then grab the mop. But if you just keep mopping up the bathtub and mopping up the mess around it, you're not really going to get anywhere and you're just going to keep cleaning up a mess that keeps overflowing. So turning off the tap means stopping plastic pollution at the source. And the source is us and big corporations and the commercial fishing industry. So that's what turning off the tap means is to make those proactive choices to reduce plastic at the source rather than spend all of our time at beach cleanups, which are super valuable for education. And they do make an impact. Uh, however, we need to stop it at the source. You know, for people listening who maybe don't see that the bathtub's overflowing, they, they may see like, hey, I see some litter. I, I've seen photos of plastic. like. How can we describe really what we experience being residents in Hawaii and being like so uniquely positioned in the Pacific where we get all of this um, litter on our coastlines? Like what what are the types of things you've seen? Could you describe like some aha moments you had or just um, some really some things that stick out in your head? Yeah, I would say some aha moments are just looking down at the sand and you see one piece of microplastic, maybe a friend points it out to you, and then you see three pieces, and then you can't look anywhere without seeing microplastic. You look down at your feet, you look down 10 yards, you walk down the beach for a mile, and it's still there. It's still there if you sift through the sand, it's still there if you dig in the sand, it's in the water, in the tide line, it's everywhere. And one of the aha moments for me was thinking, I don't even know what this piece of plastic was. This could be something from the commercial fishing industry. This could be something from someone in California who used a Tide bottle once and then mm -hmm. threw yeah. it away. It, it could be anything and we don't know. And that was one of the aha moments for me. It's not like you just see a bunch of plastic forks and plastic utensils lying around the beach and say, okay, I need to get rid of these, which we do. It's more so you don't know what any of it is. If you're talking about microplastics, there's some pieces like oyster spacers, hagfish traps um, that we see really often that we know exactly what those are coming from. Those are coming from the commercial fishing industry. And same thing with ghost nets, same thing with land-based debris, with litter. We know exactly what those products are, but with mm -hmm. the microplastics, we have no idea what it is. Yeah. So that's where the overflow comes. That's where it's like, man, we can't even know where to start. We just need to mix it all. It's it's also interesting because I don't know if people like have 
realize like those big items that you just described, like the hagfish traps or big as invisible items, um, like the ghost nets, like the fate of all of those things is microplastics. Like they all break up into microplastics. So it makes sense why they're so pervasive and you can't look at sand without seeing them because everything ultimately becomes that. And uh, I can't look at plastic without thinking that anymore. I'll tell kids if they still don't understand the idea of photodegradation, which is when plastic breaks up via sunlight and other natural elements, um, to get a tortilla chip, go home and smash it and try and smash it until all of the pieces are no longer visible. You're still going to be left with a ton of these tiny little crumbs. And so plastic never actually truly goes away. It just continues to break up into these smaller and smaller pieces and it can get to the point where they're nanoplastics. Yeah. And that's why we have like all this, I think finally publications are catching up and we're seeing like these, these new findings that are like, it is being found in human bodies and these are having impacts on certain um, organ systems and, and, you know, science takes a while, but uh, I'm only concerned with what else we're going to start discovering in the next, you know, 10, 20 years. So sustainable coastlines uh, does cleanups all throughout Hawaii. So how are your community cleanups different on other islands other than Oahu? Because that's kind of what we know here. They're definitely different for our core volunteer team. So we have um, a core group of about between like 40 and 60 volunteers that help us plan these events, help us put on these events. And they're the people that are behind the education tents, behind the check-in lines, um, that are helping with parking, answering questions. There, it's an awesome group of really dedicated volunteers. For all the listeners, this is a full production going on. Imagine the biggest beach cleanup you've ever seen, and then like multiply that times like ten, and that's a sustainable coastline cleanup. And in non-COVID times, we like to uh, boast about our festival-like atmospheres too. So we always have live music, food, games, workshops. Yeah, workshops, the whole nine yards. That's yeah, really a good time while also cleaning the beach. Yes. So on other islands, it is the same as it is here, really. It's a big community effort. Um, the differences are prior to cleanups, we'll do an education tour on outer islands. So um, we'll send our education team over a week or week and a half before the cleanup and they'll go and visit as many schools as they can, talk to as many students as they can. And that plays a big part into how in the previous years we've been able to reach 10,000 students a year, which is amazing. And um, we also get to stay with our core volunteer members at like different hotels, um, at get to camp with them. We get to stay in some super interesting places together and kind of just get to hang out and bond. Um, we have some volunteers that will go out and catch our food for us and then bring it back and, and do like a big, huge dinner for us each night. Wow. Real community vibes. It is a big community vibe on, on every Island, but the, the main difference is we get to have um, a little bit, I wouldn't say a little bit more fun, but more, free time to explore on neighbor islands so we'll we'll do the cleanup and it's a big like work hard play hard so we'll do the cleanup we'll kill it most of the time i like to say <laughs> and, um, and then the day after we'll go out and go for hikes we'll go surfing we'll hang out at the beach um maybe hit up a local bar 
Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Work hard, play hard. You guys have a van, right? An education van? It's currently getting pimped out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love high school and students at Olamana. Um, Are they outfitting we're, it? We're, yeah. We're working with students now to retrofit it and have it have like an awning so that we can have um, different setups of education supplies out, a way for us to project a presentation outdoors, uh, be like a walk-in immersive experience. And we're super stoked to get it up and running. And the goal is to just be able to drive to schools, one, or just drive to the beach, post up, and just have people be able to roll through and check out what we're doing, check out the issues, and learn about solutions. And that's the main, the main piece. This whole season that we're, everyone we're talking to is like a different way to help. And, uh, you know, we're talking to policy people, research scientists, um, companies, and Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii is a nonprofit. So what role do you think that nonprofits play in conservation? I think everyone has their own different specialty. I think it's super special here uh, on Oahu and just in Hawaii in general. We have an awesome hui of nonprofits that all do something unique to help fit into the problem and be a part of the solution. So for us, we're large scale beach cleanups and educating through those and doing waste diversion and education through that as well. Um, Kukua Hawaii Foundation has their Aina in school program um, and they have their new property on um, in Haleiwa that they'll be able to show proof of concept for a small zero waste model, um, zero waste Oahu with just their, all their solutions and um, hopefully new deposit program. Yeah. And then Surf Rider Oahu works really hard on policy and legislation. And we all kind of just fit into this perfect little puzzle that we get to collaborate and work together. And I don't know if it's the same in, in other parts of the world or other parts of the U.S., but here it works and everyone kind of gets to play their own unique part. Yeah. And hype each other up. Yeah, exactly. It's like just a, a nice conservation ohana. Yeah. Yeah, it's so cool the amount of collaboration that goes on between Hawaii nonprofits, which is kind of, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's kind of rare. We both come from marine science backgrounds and there's a lot of um, like more competition. There's definitely collaboration, but we've noticed like competitive natures with certain things like, you know, just funding and hard science and this um like energy of collaboration is so much more effective. Like I, I can't even. Yeah. We're all here for the same goal, like ultimately to clean up our oceans and yeah. save the planet. So let's work together to do it. So working with the governments that could be difficult at times since there's a lot of regulations and red tape and whatnot. Um, so how do you find that nonprofits have less restrictions? Um, I don't know if we, I'm sure we have less restrictions. Mm -hmm. We get to do things in our own way. Um, as long as it fits in with our grants and mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, you don't have to fo follow like the federal structure that some government entities have to do. Yeah. We get to do our, our own thing and it's, yeah, it's, it, it's makes it more fun. I think it's a different way to make change. I don't know if it's more effective, but it's definitely a different way. I think that legislation is going to play a huge role in the solution to plastic pollution crisis um, it's definitely going to be like a top down and 
bottom-up situation Mm -hmm. but yeah we get to make our mark and in our own way and on our own terms as a nonprofit and get to decide how we want to make change. I think within the government, it's a little bit less lenient and less Mm -hmm. fluid. And for us, we kind of get to say, okay, we're going to try out this program or this new project. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And then we'll move on to the next thing. And we kind of just keep getting to push through new ideas and like make innovative change and come up with, yeah just new, fresh, fresh things. Yeah. I found that like, what was hard for me is it's because like you said, like we really need legislation and policy to address this issue. But um, sometimes from my experience working in association with the government, things can just take a long time. And I feel this urgency, like we don't have as much time as you know, we used to, or, or time to waste, I guess. And so I love that nonprofits and other types of organizations and companies can like small businesses specifically can make like faster paced changes for the better of the environment. And I, I think that's really attractive when it comes to participating with a nonprofit. Yeah. And I, I, what I love a lot about sustainable coastlines is we want to get things going. We want to make disruptive change and mm-hmm. we want it to be impactful in the best way possible and in the most effective way possible if the government has like their way of doing it where it's a little bit slower, more permitted, things like that, we're like, you know, what? nope, we're just going to do big cleanup. Let's do it. Let's educate as many people as possible. Let's get hands people on deck. On this. Yeah. And then we'll, we can talk to them at this cleanup and tell them, Hey, look at what you're finding. See if you can use less of those things in your everyday life. Exactly. And here's all these workshops, by the way, to teach you exactly how to use less of this in your everyday life. I love that there is like Pro, you guys work on the proactive side, the reactive side, and the like mobilizing people with tools and information so that they don't have to participate in this system all the time if they don't want. And like, granted, there's so much need for systemic change too, but um, I love the like inspiration that Sustainable Coastlines um, communicates. So, okay, you found Sustainable Coastlines through Instagram. That is how you DM them. So I think that uh, we have moved more into conservation media after we both were marine scientists for a bit. And it is what we think is one of the most powerful tools. And we know that Sustainable Coastlines has an amazing media community. And I wanted to hear a little bit about how that translates to, you know, participation and partnerships on you guys' end. And you said you work in the social media space for Sustainable Coastlines too. And so what types of... Um, I guess, impacts have you been able to make through the social media activity that you see at Sustainable Coastlines? Yeah, our following is pretty deep and we have a lot of followers that are like diehard SDH fans. Oh yeah. Yes. Absolutely love. And it's a great way to promote our events first and foremost, but it's a great way to share education. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll post something that's um, about commercial fishing industry or about composting and people Mm -hmm. are psyched to learn. They're super stoked that when they are scrolling through their feed, seeing all of like these memes or, you know, pop culture things, and then they see some, get something educational and something of value, they're stoked and they want to learn more. And um, yeah, it's just a great way to make a unique impact for a demographic that is hard to reach for educational purposes. So we get to talk to people from New York, from Germany, from Australia, from California, from Kansas. We have followers from 
everywhere and of all walks of life. And it's so cool to be able to connect with that broader community and share what's going on here with them. And not only share what's going on here, but share about what they can do about it and how their actions and choices will influence what goes on around the world in terms of plastic pollution, climate change, all the things. Yeah. And you, you guys like, you guys release short films, you do, you have like really high quality imagery, like all use all these different avenues. Cause you know, each of them provide value in some way to this online community. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we have, um, we have a new one coming out, a new video. Oh yeah. Stay, stay hyped guys. It might be released yeah. by the time that you're hearing this. Yeah. <laughs> news, the SCH news. We found that when we were watching news channels, um, like no hate on the news stations, you get it. <laughs> Um, but it's all, this group did a cleanup. Good job. This group now moving on to weather. And you're just like, okay, we didn't talk about solutions. Yeah. We didn't talk about what people can do in their everyday lives. We didn't talk about the greater issues that are going on aside yeah. from that are causing this, us to do this cleanup. So there's, it's just like, why are you reporting on this? So we want, we wanted to kind of make our own news channel where, uh, we can share accurate information and where we can kind of extend the conversation on plastic pollution and environmental issues beyond what you hear on the news and in the media. So SCH News coming to our YouTube channel, like and subscribe. I love that there are always educational aspects about all of your media posts. It's so great. Yes, they're adding value in every single one. Thank you. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> Um, most of the time, Raphael, our executive director bumps in there. I'm about to go on vacation. So you're going to get some, uh, some new posts from Rachel, our operations manager and, uh, Lewis, our data specialist. So we get some, we get some new voices in there. Yeah. I gotta, gotta mix it up. I've been pursuing the zero waste lifestyle for like a really long time. And I found that people are really stoked, especially like now that it's becoming more normalized in the mainstream, like news, um, articles and blog posts and just media in general, they really want to hear about my reusable safety razor and reusable straws. But the second I like start talking about like contacting elected officials, it's like not like sexy. Like how do we make contact? Not sexy enough. They don't want to hear about it. But you know, like 10 years, five or 10 years ago, like the reusable, um, anything wasn't sexy either. So how do we make calling your elected officials sexy? Like, I don't, this is like my current goal right now because it's what we need so much with making corporate changes and putting pressure on, um, you know, our representatives and stuff. Do you have any input? <laughs> um, no, but my wheels will start turning for new video <laughs> content. <laughs> so on this very issue. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Okay. You guys have a bunch of partners. You said there's a bunch, you have a bunch of ambassadors, um, all over the world. You also have surf competition partners. Yeah. Cause you do waste diversion, um, on the North shore in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. We started off with, um, Wanderlust when they were here, they had asked Turtle Bay, Hey, do you have any contacts that can compost? And Kahi, the executive director at the time was like, I mean, I compost in my backyard. And so he's like, I'm not sure I can figure it out. So that's how our waste diversion um, program started. And then it started to evolve. WSL reached out. Um, World Surf League. And Vans. And they were like, hey, yeah, we'll fund you doing waste diversion for Vans Triple Crown. And from there, we got in touch with Volcom. And it just kind of kept 
rolling and rolling until we are where we are now, where we do events at Bishop Museum, weddings, birthday parties. We do a bunch of things. That's so cool. Yeah. So you, so these people reached out to you, but this is not going in Kahi's backyard, right? You have, but this was the start of the diversion program. So, you know, those like WSL events are, are huge. Like where, where do you guys, can you tell us a bit about the program? Yes. And this is where, again, it takes a village. Our beach cleanups aren't the only thing where we have multiple partners doing multiple different things. Um, so previously, our waste diversion program, we well, we always will separate it into um, compost. And before that was going to Wahiwana Farm on North Shore. Recycling would get picked up by a local church group. And then... Um, the trash will obviously go to H power. So the whole goal was to limit the amount that was getting sent to H power, which is the local incinerator we have here on Island. Um, despite what it says is like waste to energy. Don't believe it. Go to energyjustice.net. Mm-hmm. Do your research on, on incinerators and for those listening, incineration is like advertised is great because you're taking all this mass amount of trash and it's becoming, you know, ash, but that ash is toxic. And these incinerators are typically placed in um, low income demographic regions and they can have health implications. And so um, while it's been advertised as a great waste solution, there's so many problems with it and it's not the end all be all. Yeah, that was how we did it before. And we would have pickup trucks that would come and grab our grab our compost from us or we would take it to the farm ourselves chip it up it'd be like maggot city <laughs> we get down and dirty at these events um but all of the partners at the events would be required to use compostable containers only and still on these compostable containers sadly i actually have one here with me now it says compostable in a commercial facility only or this one says commercially compostable and no one knows what that means so a commercial composting facility is something that's like high pressure high heat and um, that's the only way that they can the compostable containers and the pla plastics um that's the only way they can return back to the earth we like to use the metaphor of a banana peel if you were to take a banana peel here and put it into the ground, it would turn back to compost and healthy soil within X amount of time. But if you were to throw a banana peel in the Arctic, it would probably just rot and freeze. It wouldn't actually turn into healthy soil, it wouldn't compost. So you need to return something back to the earth in a similar fashion of the way it was formed. So these containers are made under high pressure, high heat. They have to go back into the earth the same way. Um, so we're testing those at our new roll commercial composting machine uh, at Full Circle Farm. And it's an amazing farm. It's made to be education for regenerative agriculture. They have so many cool things going on there. And um, Sean, the owner of the farm, he is like a composting guru. Wizard. Wow. (laughs) He's a wizard. You can catch him on our new YouTube series too. There's so much misinformation around food waste, around composting. Um, Like everyone just kind of knows it as this like stinky, dirty, gross thing that no one really wants to talk about. But it's so cool. I know. Healthy soil is like the answer. Everyone go watch Kiss the Ground. Everyone just like start a backyard compost. It's the 
best. I love composting personally. Yeah, he's a compost human for sure. Yes. Look out for our new uh, Hot for Compost merch that we will hopefully. Oh, we oh, need it. Exciting. Gift. <laughs> um, okay, awesome. So you, so composting is it answer for people to do, to um, implement in their backyard, but also we need it scaled up. And I saw, I heard this quote, I think I actually saw it on social media and it was like everything that you, that's made either returns to the earth as food or as poison. And so the more things that we take to return back to the earth as food through compost can divert our waste, like save space and landfills. And like, you know, you might think throwing your food away in a landfill, it degrades, but at the end of the day, it usually just sits there. It emits like methane, a really, really, really potent greenhouse gas. And uh, it's not, it's not the end all solution. So um, I feel like compost is a perfect example of like circular regenerative solutions. Yes, exactly. And I always get asked like, we're a plastic pollution nonprofit essentially. And it's like, why do we focus so much on composting? And it's, it's just the idea of we need a circular economy. We need regenerative solutions and, you know, healthy soils mean healthy seas. It's totally a full circle. Everything is connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just trying to mitigate the amount of waste we produce. And by creating healthy soil, especially here on Island, it means more fu- more food security, more opportunity for us to be able to grow food on Island, more soil that, can sustain food growth right now we don't have a ton of soil on island that Mm -hmm. is is healthy really and um if we can if we can produce more food here then it's less that's getting imported less it's getting imported in plastic mostly more independence accessibility equity all these issues are so interconnected i feel like um okay you touched on this earlier um and i want to talk about it because it is a hot topic right now so you guys deal with coastline cleanups and ghost nets are a huge part of plastic pollution in our oceans and as someone who's worked really closely with endangered species and marine debris it's all too often the reason for cause of death and entanglement and ingestion in byproducts of the industrial fishing industry is a huge threat not just to marine life, but because it breaks down into microplastics. So how often are you seeing ghost nets and removing them? And what have been your personal experiences with them polluting um, our Ina? They're a beast to remove. Like it's, it's remove one ghost net and you're just going to be like, you know what? It's not worth it. I don't need (laughs) this commercial fish fish. I'll do my best to find locally sourced fish if I need to eat fish. And it's, it's just such a turnoff. Like anytime someone is like, Oh, do you want this like food lamb poke? I'm like, no. (laughs) You're like, I've removed a ghost net. I'm Um, good. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, really? I'm so fine. It it's, they get so bogged down with sand. It takes hours and so many hands to remove them. Um, it's yeah and you just see how much other plastic gets entangled in them you see how many uh microfibers will break off off, yeah yeah and they're they're gnarly it's and they weigh so much like way more than anyone would expect like on on average i feel like it's probably around a thousand pounds every single time we remove a ghost net uh and then there are some that we find that look like they've been there for a while and those are the ones that 
are like massive, bigger than like an SUV. And those are the ones wow. that I take. They really are just like uh, wrecking balls for the ocean, just coming and they collect even more ghost nets if they come in contact with others and will just entangle anything in their path pretty much. They, they're intentionally thrown overboard um, for those that don't know what ghost nets are. They're intentionally thrown overboard um, to act as artificial reefs and they start to collect um, algae and those start to signal um, bait fish to come around. And then there are these um, things called fads, fishing aggregate devices that will signal um, commercial ships when um, the big fish come. And when those, when they get that signal, they'll go and just haul up as many of them as they can. Um, and then then yeah, the ghost net just stays. stays. If you um, find a ghost net on the coastline in Hawaii, what can you do? Well, soon, so excited about this one, we'll have our Marine Debris Rapid Response Program. I'm sure by the time this airs, it'll be fully launched. And we'll have a um, call-in number, a text-in number that you can send your location or a picture of the net um, and certain information and we'll send out a team and there'll be paid team members. So with COVID times, we know that a lot of people are unemployed or um, don't have the same income sources they did pre-COVID. So we're able to um, pay some of our core volunteer members and community members to go and get these nets uh, from the coastline. And from there, they'll either take them um, to a pier in Pearl City where it's nets to energy um, or they'll be able to take them to uh, Center for Marine Debris Research where they'll sample them to determine the origin of the nets. So we've been doing zero waste for, we've been trying to do zero waste for quite some time now. Chris, they kind of introduced me to it and I've hopped on board. Um, but there's this thing by environmental advocates that individuals shouldn't really bear the burden um, when these corporate companies are creating most of our waste. Um, Oh my God, yes. <laughs> How do you feel? Because th there's things that we can do as individuals, definitely. And there's also things that we hope companies will do and we have to start urging them and telling them what we want, essentially. Yeah. I, th yeah. I think as the younger generations start to become consumers, these corporations will either have to get on board or they're going to fall behind. I think the younger generations get it. Even with uh, Bill 40, the recent piece of legislation that passed that involves plastic pollution here on Oahu, there were signatures by thousand kids around the island and a lot of them showed up for the hearings. And so they get it. They know that this is going to be their problem to bear and they know that they're not responsible for it. Once they you know, come of age, they're, they're going to be educated and they're going to know how to be a responsible consumer. And so, yeah, the companies that don't get on board now are just going to fall by the wayside. And being zero waste is hard. It's a lot of pressure. And, you know, if you just keep practicing at it, it's better to practice zero waste imperfectly and have a lot of people doing that than having a couple people doing it perfectly. Um, so, yeah, we really started to embrace the idea of being perfectly imperfect from one of our ambassadors, well, two of our ambassadors, Patagonia and um, our other ambassador, Alana, and with help from Nicole and Zero Waste Oahu crew. And yeah, it's definitely going to be a multitude of solutions that contribute to getting rid of plastic as it is right now. And it's going to be a top down and a bottom up 
approach. It's not going to be one be all end all solution. It's not going to be one singular cleanup that gets rid of all the plastic in the world. It's going to take a lot of people, a lot of effort, a lot of commitment and change to make it happen. These things aren't mutually exclusive, like individual change and corporate change is are both part of it and they're both needed. And I don't think we'll be able to solve the problem if we just focus on one. So we should focus on both. Exactly. Yeah. Which is awesome because you guys are doing, you know, large scale um, beach cleanups, which are a reactive solution, but then you're doing waste diversion. And I saw also you guys are doing like corporate events where you can teach companies um, about waste reduction uh, methods. Is that something you're still uh, actively participating? Yes. So if companies reach out um, and it usually comes alongside uh, donations that we can fund the cleanup, um, we'll take them out and show them what's happening and kind of talk to them about how they, as a company, whether it's um, like a chiropractic group and we're just talking to them about what they can bring into the office themselves that eliminates waste, like their own reusable mugs or reusable utensils, or whether it's a bigger brand where we can talk about the products that they're actually producing and how they can make those better for the environment. Um, yeah, we we talk about all of those things at, at these cleanups and show them what's really happening here. So if somebody wants um, kind of one of these events or if they want to get involved in some of your beach cleanups, what can they do? DM us, sign up for our newsletter, links in the bio of our Instagram. Um, and they can also reach out to our, um, out to our email, which is info at sustainablecoastlineshawaii.org. It's a long one. But. Yeah. Cool. And like, if you're having a beach cleanup, I know with COVID, but maybe as things, you know, open up a bit more, if, if tourists are visiting and there's, they can participate. You don't have to be meeting requirements, right. To be a, a volunteer to large scale beach cleanup. Oh, we welcome anyone and everyone. We want as many people, um, being reached as possible and as many people to see this problem. And especially if you're a tourist travel responsibly, give back everywhere you go. So if you're coming here, um, come join us at a beach cleanup and then take what you learned home and make changes in your own community. And that's where we say inspiring local communities to care for their coastline. It's not, it's, it's local communities anywhere. It's your local community, my local community. Um, so we want everyone to take that message home with them. One of my favorite parts about working in ocean conservation is that it's not just a job. It's like, it's your vocation. It's your passion. And so I wanted to know what is your favorite part of your job? So many favorite parts of my job. First of all, I get to work with like some of my best friends. I love everyone I work with. I love all of our volunteers. They're all so passionate and dedicated. I love uh, hearing the aha moments from volunteers that join us at cleanups or at waste diversion events. Uh, I love hearing like words of affirmation from our followers or from our volunteers when they say that they've had the best time at one of our cleanups or that we've changed the way that they think. That's amazing. I love seeing the when it clicks in students' heads. Um, I love connecting with our online community through social media. And then I also love the fun stuff that we do. It's like Filming video projects, getting dirty in compost, camping, um, just getting to spend time in a unique way with friends is, 
is the best. That's awesome. I, um, I remember my first, it was right when I moved here. It was, it was probably five, five or six years ago. And a sustainable coastlines beach cleanup was the first one. First thing I did, I was just starting graduate school. And I remember at the time I was trying to figure out how to make my own laundry detergent. And you had a tent, a workshop tent on DIY laundry detergent. And I was like, this person's teaching me. And then she sent me home with the recipe and a sample and I'm like still using it. (laughs) It's been six years. I know, I'll, I'll say it to you, I will. Yeah. And then, and then um, one of the, this just popped into my head, one of the most rewarding moments or like the time where you just feel like, yes, I just made a difference as an individual is after you've done like an hours long cleanup, got super gross and dirty, really sweaty, had a nice workout, cleaned hundreds of pounds off the beach, and then you go and grab a beer with your friends. Like that's where it's like, ah, this feels good. We did yeah. that. We go into we go into different bars around town and people look at us like we have 15 heads because we're disgusting, but it's so fun. <laughs> and then we asked Monica a question that you are all probably asking yourselves. When you're in one of the most polluted coastlines in the world, how do you move thousands of pounds of debris and how do you get it out of there? We find a way. We... <laughs> <laughs> whether it's like a human train of oh, that, like, wow. carry things up the side of a cliff um or helicopters and um, we've had helicopter companies help us out and do us a huge solid we'll tie things up in these um call them super sacks they're like these giant really durable bags that parlay donates to us and mm. um we'll tie those up really well and get those coptered out um but yeah that that beach is also the worst that I have ever seen. When I first yeah. went there, it was uh, probably a foot deep of plastic. I could put wow. like, up to my elbow down and I was still- And then there's like sea turtles right there. Yeah. it's And it goes like bay after bay after bay. It's like more of the same. Um, mm-hmm. That's where we found like a whole um, live fishing container like the big containers where they keep live fish on commercial fishing boats. And it was the size mm-hmm. of a hot tub. You just have to, oh, wow. like, how did this wash up here? Yeah. Why, oh, how did this yeah. get here? Why is it in the ocean in the first place? Really? Yeah. Yeah. But that's, yeah, yeah sure. that's where there's, it's microplastic everywhere. You're trying to clean up microplastic off the coastline and it's just washing right back out into the water. You take like nets and um, try and sift through tide line and sift through the water. And it's just, yeah, it's gnarly. And if you've ever felt plastic, if you've ever swam in a bay of microplastic, that's enough to turn you off of plastic. <laughs> How do you um, stay inspired and manage eco-anxiety? That is back to my favorite part of my job where I get mm-hmm. to interact with a lot of different community members and see the aha moments click in their in their heads. and. Um, hear how we're making a difference in their lives that's Mm -hmm. that's where it really clicks and that's where I stay inspired um same thing with education of kids as soon as you see it click in their head it's there's nothing quite like it it's it's just inspiring and keeping it fun like if if this job was was boring or if our organization wasn't run the way it is where we do these massive cleanups we do waste diversion we educate students but tying it all together we 
fun is like the main thing that we're driving towards. If you don't make it fun, this topic gets so heavy so quickly. So that's, yeah, we have to keep it fun. Yeah, it's so, so, so important. Everyone listening, keep your organizations fun if you're saving the planet because <laughs> it can burn you out real quick. So quick. We like to finish up every interview with uh, kind of the same question. So knowing what you know, um, what's the biggest uh, challenge facing our oceans right now? And what can we do to kind of mitigate that? I think the biggest challenge is everyone that either is uneducated or it hasn't clicked yet in their heads is still continuing to follow the status quo. And the status quo is damaging our oceans, it's damaging our soils, it's damaging our air quality. Um, it's keeping us disconnected from each other and from the environment. Get connected, um, reconnect with your environment, reconnect with each other, get involved in your community, go out and volunteer. There's so many different ways that you can be a part of the solution. And so finding your unique way that you can make an impact is vital. Definitely. And we all have our own unique way that we can contribute. We call it our superpower, SCH. <laughs> SCH to everything that has an S. Yes. Find your superpower and um, yeah. And just get involved any way you can keep asking questions and yeah, just stay curious, stay educated, follow sustainable coastlines to continue to learn more. Definitely a great way to stay educated and get involved. Oh, thank you so much, Monica. You were wonderful. Thank you, guys. It was so fun. Wow, honestly, wasn't she such a blast? What a great conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sustainability in the Sea. And if you want to learn more about any topics we covered, they will be linked in the show notes. If you want to support Sustainability in the Sea, please follow, subscribe, share this episode with another wave maker in your community, and leave a review because that's so important when a podcast is getting off the ground. Get in touch with us and tell us how you're making waves in your community and if you want any topics covered. And until next Next week, this has been an episode of Sustainability and the Sea.